The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 6. We're studying the Bread of Life discourse. I'm going to read verses 48 through 59. John 6, 48 to 59. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This particular section of the Bread of Life discourse is one of those definitive statements about the Christian life. So much is contained right here about what Christianity is, about who Christ is, and what Christ has done for us. Really, you could say that the end of this discourse encapsulates all of the Christian life. What does it mean to be a Christian? What is Christianity about? It's right here. Also, the reasons for all the world's problems are here as well. Why is there sin in the world? Why is there wars in the world? Why is there sickness in the world, depression, lust, crime? It's all right here. It also addresses us as individuals. Where are you this morning? Is your heart empty or is it full? Is your soul homeless or at perfect peace? Is your soul empty or satisfied? Is your soul fearful about the future or is it confident about facing death? Are you searching for answers or have you found the truth? Jesus addresses it all here. And of course, what he says is the answer to all of these questions. 
is that he's the answer. He's the only answer for the problems in the world. Jesus and him crucified, that's the answer. And that's really in its simplicity the message of John's gospel. Over and over and over again, Jesus is saying, look at me. I am the answer to your problem. I am the answer to the problems of the world. And that's the point of these I am statements. Jesus makes these I am statements throughout the gospel of John. We saw the first one a few verses earlier in John 6, 20, when Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. He says to them, literally, I am. Do not be afraid. And then in John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. John 10, 7, he says, I am the door of the sheep. John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then John 15, 1, he says, I am the true vine. What's Jesus' point in making these statements over and over and over again? He's saying, I'm the only answer. That, that's why he's using that repetition. And of course, here in verse 48, look at verse 48. Verse 48 is the defining verse for the rest of the discourse. Everything he says in the following verses is a footnote on verse 48. Verse 48 is his definitive statement about who he is. He says, I am the bread of life. And of course, we saw earlier, if you look uh, over on, on the, the side of the page on your Bible, John 6.35, look at verse 35. Jesus said this earlier. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But here he circles back around to this idea. He, he wants to come back and reiterate it in all of its simplicity. And he just simply says, I am the bread of life. And we looked at these words earlier and what they mean, but just as a refresher, I am is a divine statement. Remember, God told Moses in Exodus 3, I am sent you. When Jesus says, I am, he is claiming to be God. He is claiming to be the Son of God. And when he says that he is the bread, he's saying two things. First, he is speaking about the necessity of Christ, because bread is necessary to live. Also notice that he puts the word the in front of bread, talking about his exclusivity. Christ is the bread, not merely a source of bread, not one of many breads, but he is the only bread. That's a really important point that Jesus is making. As Christians, we believe in the exclusivity of Christ. There is one way to heaven. You understand that? I can't tell you how many polls I've seen of evangelicals that say, I believe in Jesus, but, but other religions are other roads to heaven. Uh-uh. Jesus is saying He is the bread. He, he's the only bread. And then He says, this is of life. 
and that means spiritual and eternal life. So if you put this statement together, what Jesus is saying is, is that Jesus is God, and He is the needed and only source of spiritual life in this world. Did you get that? That's Christianity in a nutshell. Jesus is the only source of spiritual life in this world, period. You can't find it anywhere else. It really is that simple. And what our world is looking for this morning are complex solutions to all the problems, when really the solution is very, very simple. How do you solve lust, greed, adultery, divorce, wars, abuse, hate, selfishness, violence, exploitation? The only way to solve those problems at the end of the day is Christ and Him crucified. You, you, can, you can pass laws, you can pass bills, you can raise money, but if you don't address the root issue of the problem in this world, Amen. you aren't going to solve anything at the end of the day. The answer is, is Christ. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now, the first thing I want you to see this morning about this point is in, for, in, is in verse 49. I want you to write in the margin of your Bible, the necessity of bread. The necessity of bread. Look at verse 49. He said, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. What Jesus is saying is, is he's referring to the Jews that came out of the Exodus. And you remember, Moses prayed to God, and God did what? When they were hungry, he rained down manna from heaven. It was like a, a, a bread that they ate. And, and what the Jews were, were saying earlier to Jesus is, if you look at verse 31, the Jews were saying, Jesus, we want you to do a manna trick. We want you to, to give us bread every single day. They said, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're saying, Jesus, we saw you multiply the loaves and the fish. We don't doubt that you did a miracle, but we want another miracle because we're hungry again, and we want another miracle tonight. We want another miracle tomorrow. We want it to keep going. We want you to keep producing manna. And what Jesus is saying is this. He says, here's what you need to know. Manna? still resulted in death, physical death. Even though that that manna was from God, those who ate it still died. And here's Jesus' point. I want you to pay very close attention to this. Even God's good gifts do not give life. Even God's good gifts do not give life. They do not satisfy the soul. Everything of this world that God has created, this world, God created as good, very good. But everything in this world is fading and temporary, and nothing in this world will keep you from death. That's the point that Jesus is making. It's all manna. Your manna is anything in this world that you depend on for life outside of Christ. Anything in this world that you depend on for life outside of Christ. 
if you're feeling down, depressed, and you say, what can give me life? If your answer in that blank is anything but Christ, that's your manna. What Jesus is saying, though, is that all those things will never satisfy. You're still going to die. The Bible calls these things broken cisterns. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They won't satisfy. This week I was thinking in particular about this and what Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes. I want you to turn over to Ecclesiastes. Keep your finger in John 6. And I just want to read to you the first few verses here of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Now Solomon wrote these verses, and you can remember Solomon had everything a person could desire. He had wisdom, wealth, resources, and listen to what Solomon says. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 2.1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. In other words, I'm trying to figure out what satisfies. Life is short. What's going to do it? He said, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I got busy. You know, it feels good to accomplish things, right? He said, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. So I had just great wealth, more than anybody else, more than my father did. I also gathered for myself silver and gold in the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and my wisdom remained with me. Now listen to this, these last two verses. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. Striving after wind. What's the picture there? You don't catch it. It's like the other day, my kids went running in the field trying to catch a rabbit. They're not going to catch it. Never going to catch it. You can't catch the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. 
when Solomon uses that phrase, under the sun, he's describing life in this world without God. There's nothing to be gained under the sun. There's nothing to be gained in this world without God. That's his point. So turn back to, to John 6. And as you're doing, I want you just to think about the, the lives that are considered great, the Sinatras and the Sean Connerys and the Dolly Partons of the world, people that documentaries are made about, people that live these charmed lives, people that are successful. And we often think to ourselves, if we could only live that life, then I would be really satisfied if I was famous like that or had that type of wealth or that type of recognition. Jesus says this, you eat the manna, you still die. You live on Sunset Boulevard, you still die. You own a company in Silicon Valley, you still die. Paul says, 1 Timothy 6, 7, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. All of that is like trying to catch the wind. So look at verse 50. What's the anecdote? Where do we go? Where are they to go? Jesus says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven. Right here, I think Jesus is pointing to himself. He's saying, look at me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the real bread that comes down from heaven. So the contrast, remember, is with the manna. But Jesus says, look, the manna, that, that came from the sky. I'm the one who's actually come from heaven. Remember what John says, the very first verse of this gospel. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus has been the eternal Son of God. He came down to heaven on a rescue mission. Why did He come from heaven? Well, He tells us right in this verse, uh, circle those two words, so that. So that. They're right after the comma. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that. This is a purpose clause. This is the reason why he came. He said, I came so that one may eat of it and not die. Now, when he references death here, he's referencing spiritual death. He's not saying that we won't die physically, but he's saying we will live spiritually. And this is why Jesus came on his mission. This is the reason for the incarnation, to bridge the gap. And if you think about the world's religions, okay, there's hundreds, thousands of different manifestations of different religions, but this is what is unique about Christianity, is that Christianity is about the Son of God coming down from heaven to take us up to heaven. Every other religion is about man trying to figure out a way to get to heaven. Christianity is about God saying this is the way and sending His Son down from heaven to bring us up to where He is. Jesus is the bridge that spans the gap. That's what He's saying. He's the only bridge. He's the only bridge. How can you get to heaven? How, how can you get to heaven? 
I don't know where heaven is. You think that you can just go out into the desert and have enough transcend, transcendent meditation and that's going to get you there? That, that you can just speak your heaven into existence? No. Somebody has to come from heaven and bring us there. That's what Jesus does. He lived a perfect life and died on our behalf, as we'll see momentarily, to bring us to God, to rescue us from condemnation, to provide that way to heaven. Now, what does Jesus mean here in verse 50 by eat the bread? What does he mean by eat the bread? Well, he explains it in the next verse. Look at verse 51. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. So he's, he's again, reiterating what he had just said. This time he adds this phrase that he is the living bread. It's not just that he's the bread. He says, I'm the alive bread, literally is what he says, that he possesses life in and of himself. Remember, Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4.10 that he possessed living water. Jesus said earlier in verse 33, he says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then in Revelation 1.18, he describes himself as the living one. John says in John 1.4, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. So he is the living bread that comes down from heaven. Keep looking at verse 51. Notice the invitation. He says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Who does anyone include? Does it include you? Yes, it does. If anyone eats this bread, remember earlier, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, talking about divine election, divine sovereignty. Here he's saying, if anyone comes to me, if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Now, hold up. Look at verse Look at verse 47. What does Jesus say in verse 47? Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So earlier he said if you believe you have eternal life. Here he says if you eat the bread you have life. Which one is it? Well, this helps us understand what it means to eat the bread. Eating the bread, listen, is not some mystical thing. It's simply a metaphor for faith. Eating the bread, and then we'll see in a moment, drinking the blood is a metaphor, a spiritual metaphor for faith. That's what he's talking about. Also, in this passage, when Jesus says, come to me, that's also describing faith. So he describes faith as believing, he describes faith as coming to him, and he describes faith as eating the bread or eating his flesh and, and drinking his blood. And it's a great metaphor, eating the bread. It pictures, first, our need of Christ, right? Everyone needs food. Every single person needs food. It pictures our desire for Christ. Every single person, when they get hungry, wants food. You desire it. Have you ever gone a few days without eating much or one of those long fasts 
I remember we used to go out, out on these field exercises in the Marine Corps. You'd have like one, maybe two MREs for the week. You exhaust those on the first day. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, man, you, you know, somebody has some chiclet gum and you're just, you just want some, you just want anything. And, and you start just dreaming about steaks, right? You get hungry. And, and that's what Jesus is saying. That's the picture of the Christian life is, is once you've tasted Christ, you desire more of Christ. And then also, bread pictures our necessity of personal appropriation. What do I mean by that? Is that you can't eat for somebody else. You can't eat for somebody else. You can't drink for somebody else. Sometimes I watch, you know, a football game, and in your team, uh, the players start cramping up in the fourth quarter. Have you ever had this thought, or maybe this is just weird for me, but I'm like, man, if, you know, I'm hydrated. If only they had the fluids that I got. You can't, but you can't eat for somebody else. You can't drink for somebody else. You personally have to eat the bread yourself. You personally have to believe in Christ, or you will have spiritual death. That's what Jesus is saying. And, and that's Jesus' promise to live forever. He says, if you eat the bread, you will live forever with the Lord. Notice that this is the promise of eternal security, that if you believe in Jesus, if you've eaten the bread, you can know that you will have eternal life. And this is one of the other things that the world is searching for, is life, eternal life life beyond the grave. How can I have eternal life? You don't find it in a Marvel movie or a scientific lab. In D.C., it's found in Christ Amen. and only in Christ. Jesus promises that all who believe, anyone who believes, anyone who eats this bread, he says, will live forever. Isn't that an incredible statement? That's Christianity. That's, that's the hope. Look, our time is ticking. Every day, one less day for you on the clock. Life is short. You will die. What's our only hope for eternity? Christ, eternal life. What, do you happen when you're, what happens to you when you're faced with tragedy? It will happen. What happens when the, you get word about the car accident and a child is dead? What do you do? What's your only hope in life and death? It's Christ. Don't put yourself in a bubble. Don't pretend that we don't live in a fallen world. Don't pretend that there's not a judgment don't pretend that there's not a hell. These things are real. Satan wants you to lure you into thinking that they're not, that you'll live forever, but you won't. You'll die. You'll face God. And what Jesus is saying here is that the only hope for eternal life is Him. How can He say such a thing? How can He make such a promise? How can Jesus deliver on this while no one else can? He answers in the second half of verse 51. Look at verse 51 again. He says, And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
What's he talking about? He's clearly referencing the cross, the atonement. Jesus came in order to give us this life. He had to die to give his life as a ransom for many, to give his life for the world. By that, I think he means not just the Jews, but everyone, the Gentiles. There's a little word in this verse, for. I will give for. means on behalf of. He says, I will give my life for the life of the world. John says in John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world in order to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John says in 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. The same Greek word, huper, on behalf of. Paul says Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Same Greek word, on behalf of, huper. It's Christ's death for us that purchases eternal life. It's the only atonement made for sins. Listen, no other religion has an atonement. No other religion has an atonement. Islam doesn't have an atonement. You know what its answer is to your past sin? Be better. Follow the five pillars. Only Christianity has a cross with blood poured out by a perfect man for your sin. That's the difference. Only Christianity. Only Christianity has this atonement. And that's the greatest news in the world. Because you can't earn your way to heaven, but Christ did. Now, there's massive confusion about what Jesus has just said. So I want you to write in the margin of your Bible, next to verse 52, confusion over bread. Confusion over bread. Now, earlier Jesus said that for anyone to understand his message, they had to be taught by the Father. That's verse 45. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. What's happening here is these people have a veil over their eyes. They don't understand what Jesus is saying at all. Look at verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves. Disputed is actually a, a soft term. The Greek word is emikanto. It literally means to fight or brawl. So th they are quarreling just with great fervor. It, it, this is flagrant. This is a, a raucous crowd. There is just incredible frustration about what Jesus has said. Perhaps some think that Jesus is thinking literally, how can, how can we eat your flesh? Others perhaps think that he's saying something symbolically, but they don't understand what it means. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They say, how can you give us your flesh? So they're failing to see the spiritual dynamic taking place. Now, notice what Jesus says in verse 53. He ups the ante. He, he keeps pressing on the gas. 
in how he describes faith. Look how graphic these terms are. So, Jesus said to them, he, he doesn't try to say, no, this is symbolic. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whenever Jesus says, truly, truly, He means it's important. Listen, amen, amen. This is important. You must eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, or you have no life in you. And of course, they were already confused, so their confusion continues. And this confusion has not just been with the Jews at that time. There has been massive confusion over what Jesus meant since then, past 2,000 years. The Roman Catholic communion took this verse to mean literally that when the Lord's table is served, that you are eating the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's the doctrine of transubstantiation, that when the priest prays over the table, that the elements actually change into the body and blood of Christ. And so then, the way that you stay saved, the way that you have eternal life, is you keep eating and you keep drinking the literal body and blood of Christ. And they get that from this verse. Now, here, here's why that's not what Jesus is saying, and I'll explain what Jesus is saying in a moment. But one, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, He referred to the bread as what? His body. What does He call it here? His flesh. It's different. In the Lord's Supper, it's His body. Second reason why this, He's not talking about the Lord's Supper, it hadn't been instituted yet. <laughs> when was the Lord's Supper instituted? The night of the Passover. In six months. It's not even a thing. And by the way, when, when John wrote the gospel, the Lord's Supper had been around for 20 or 30 years. If John knew Jesus was making an explicit reference to the Lord's Supper, he would have made that known in, in the text. But he's, he's quoting Jesus, and it's, no, it's not the body. It's, it's the sarks. It's, it's the flesh. Now, also third, third, re third reason why this can't be talking about the Lord's Supper, because if Jesus is talking about the Lord's Supper, it would mean that the Lord's Supper is salvific, that in order to have life, you have to take of the Lord's Supper. But what does the Bible say saves? Does he say the Lord's Supper saves? No. Clearly, in this Dialogue, Jesus says, verse 47, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. It's faith that saves, not taking the Lord's Supper. But here's the appeal. The appeal of, of sacramentalism is this. 
And by sacramentalism, I mean this, that you can be saved by taking the Lord's Supper. Faith is something that you can't see, right? You tell a child, you want your child to go to heaven. What do you say? You say, believe. You have to believe. You can't, you can't make a child believe. But it's easier to see a little child come up and say, hey, just take the, take the supper, then you're saved. It feels like you've accomplished something, that you've put that check in the box. Okay, I know that so-and-so has believed they've taken the Lord's Supper. But faith is a thing of the heart, and it's a thing that each of us as individuals must do. Now, of course, the Lord's Supper pictures what Jesus is talking about, but Jesus is not talking about the Lord's Supper. Jesus is talking about faith, faith in Christ. That's what eating the flesh means. Remember, believing in Jesus, and then he adds, drink his blood, which means believing in Jesus' atonement on the cross, that Christ and Christ crucified is the only means for receiving spiritual life. J.C. Ryle said, we may learn that faith in Christ's atonement unites us by the closest possible bonds to our Savior and entitles us to the highest privileges. Our souls shall find full satisfaction for all their wants. It's faith. It's faith in Christ. That's what this pictures. And Jesus says, unless you believe, you have no life can't trust on your moralism. You can't trust on your good works. It's feeding on me. It's drinking my blood. It's coming under the atonement that you find heaven. There is no other way to heaven besides Jesus Christ, and every other religion is a road paved to hell. Only Christ gets you all the way to heaven. Only Christ. It, 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 this is humbling, though, isn't it? That you can't get there on your own that you need an atonement, that you can't earn your way, that Christ is the only way. It, it, it's, it's humbling because it takes it out of our hands. And Jesus is saying, I had, I'm, I'm going to spill my blood and you must drink it. You must appropriate it for yourself in order to be saved. You can't earn your way. So, now Jesus, beginning in verse 54, and lastly, is, is going to describe the benefits of bread, the benefits of bread, right in the margin next to verse 54, the benefits of bread. The first one, there's four, is eternal life. Look at verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Underline the word has, notice that it is in the present tense, it's a it's a reality that you experience now. Eternal life is something that you possess now that carries over into the future. Next, underline the word feeds. Jesus uses a different word here to describe eating. It's the Greek word trogon. And here's what's interesting about this is this word is, to you, is used to describe animals grazing. Think of a cow chewing a cud. He's saying it's, it's, it's this idea of munching, continual chewing, continual eating. It's a very graphic word to describe eating. And Jesus is going to use this word throughout the rest of the narrative to describe eating. But it really pictures faith as an ongoing activity. 
It's an ongoing thing. So question, are you saved when you first believe in Christ? Yes, you are. You're saved the moment you believe in Jesus. But does that mean that you stop believing somewhere along the line? No. You keep feeding on Christ. You keep believing. It's an ongoing daily act of believing in Christ. And Jesus says, whoever believes, present tense, has this reality of eternal life. So that's the first benefit. We've already discussed this in detail. The second, look at verse 54 at the end, is a resurrection body. This is the second benefit. And I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus promises not just eternal life, but a future resurrection body. Would it be, I, I think it would be great enough just to know that my soul was going to be with the Lord forever. I, that for me, that's good. But Jesus says, no, it's actually more than that. Your soul goes to be with the Lord the moment that you die. But then when the Lord comes back, Jesus says, I will raise up your body and reunite your soul with a new resurrection body, and then you will be with me forever. How will this come about? Look at verse 55. This is the power of all this. He says, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. What he's saying is, is that the power to achieve this is not in our faith, but in Christ's person and work. Here's what I mean by that. It's not the strength or the degree of your faith that saves, but it's the strength of Christ in His atoning work. You understand? That, that, that is so important for you to grasp. Because you might wake up one day, and maybe you have a doubt, or maybe your faith isn't as strong as it was the day before. Does that mean that you're any less saved? No, it does not. Because it's not how much you've eaten of Christ, it's that you've eaten of Christ. Because look what he says. He says, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. It's the power of Christ in His atoning work that saves you. It's the power of that. So the question is, is are you united in faith to what Christ has done? You can have great faith or you can have little faith, but it's still faith. Now, you should aspire to have great faith, but if you have faith, then you're united to Christ and you're saved because His flesh is true food and His blood is true drink. Third benefit is communion with Christ. Communion with Christ. Look at verse 56. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That word abide means remain. It's a word that expresses continual and mystical fellowship between Christ and the believer. It essentially means that Christ becomes your home and he takes residence in your heart. Jesus Christ is the house in which the Christian abides. 1 John 2.27 says, But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. 1 John 4.15, John says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. 
What this means is that the believer has the privilege of enjoying the benefits of fellowship and spiritual intimacy with God right now. Right now. God's your home. Christ is your home. Our world is looking for belonging and a place to find home in some sort of nostalgia or, or, or some sort of um, belief system, anything our world wants to feel at home. But the Christian is always at home because you're always with Christ. And it doesn't matter where you go in the world. It doesn't matter if you leave Raleigh, go to the other side of the world, go to the other side of the moon. It doesn't matter where you go. Christ is with you. And so you're always at peace. You're always at home. I remember when I was in the Marine Corps, I got orders to go to Japan. Japan. And I was 20, 23, 24 years old. I didn't know anybody in Japan. Not one person. And I went to DFW, got on the plane, and took a 13, 14 hour flight to Tokyo. Didn't know a single person. You know what? I felt right at home. Because Jesus is with me. That power right there is what enables the missionaries to go to the ends of the earth. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Great Commission? At the very end, he said, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I mean, how do these guys, Adoniram Judson, how do they how do they go to Burma? Leave everybody behind. Because Christ is their home. He remains with you. I mean, that's one of the most profound things, that Christ takes residence in your soul in the power of the Holy Spirit, and that you are in God, and that you're always at home. And then the fourth benefit is life. And I don't just mean life in the future. I mean life now, spiritual life now. I mean, this is, this is the great thing about Christianity. If, you, if you're just new and you're considering Christianity, Christianity is the offer of not just a set of beliefs, but a new life. It's Christ's life now. Look at what Jesus says, verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Notice how he describes God as the living Father, and then he says that his life is contingent on the Father. The Son of God is eternally begotten, not made, eternally generated from the Father. The Son has always existed. He is the only begotten Son of God. He says in John 5, 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to also have life in himself. So God the Son has the Father's life, and then whoever believes in Jesus has that life in himself also. So the Father gives life to the Son. The Son gives life to whoever believes in him. John 14, 19, Jesus says, because I live, you shall live also. And what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3 is that you receive this life through the new birth that you are born again into the kingdom of God, and that your life begins anew. That's what Christianity is about. It is about a new life in Christ. When you become a Christian, your old life is done, and now you live a life that Jesus Christ imparts to you, a spiritual life 
because the Holy Spirit takes residence in your heart. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a new life. You hear that? You're not going to get this anywhere else. This is the best thing on the planet. (sighs) A life with satisfaction and joy and hope in Christ's life in you, this is the best. It doesn't get any better, I can promise you. In verse 58, he restates the argument. He just sums it up. This is a summary statement of everything that he's already said. He says, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And then John gives a little detail about the setting of all these things in verse 59. He said, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So there it is. I am the bread of life. Whoever eats my flesh will live forever. Whoever drinks my blood will live forever. Have you eaten and partaken of the Lord Jesus Christ in faith? There's no more important question to answer than that. Have you trusted alone in Christ? There's no other bread. I am the bread of life. Heavenly Father, we approach the throne of grace this morning. We pray, Lord, that our faith would be great. We don't want just a little faith. We want great faith. Great faith in knowing the truth that you promised, that all who eat of the bread will have eternal life and will have life now, and that this is secure, and that we will live, as you say, forever. What glorious truth is this in the face of sin and death and evil in this world, that if we believe that we don't need to fear any of those things, that we can face this world with certainty, because we've believed and you have promised that all who eat this bread will live forever. We pray, Lord, that you would give us great faith. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.